Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Violson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Dave, refresh my memory. Where did you, when did you get your car? Well, let's see. It was right at the middle of the whole COVID thing. And uh, right, I think it was Black Friday of 2020. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, you got it from the dealer down the street, right? No, no. It was in um, Philadelphia. It was in Philadelphia. Yeah. City of Brotherly Love. That's weird because about four months later, I bought my car and I got mine in Northern Virginia. Why did you have to go all the way up to, to Philadelphia? It was the only one available, Trigvi, and uh, I, I wanted it very badly. So I, I decided just make the make the trip, and I grabbed my father, and we grabbed a plane ticket, and we flew out. And twenty three hours after we hopped on the plane, we were home. Yeah, I had a, a, a similar thing. I couldn't I couldn't find the car that I wanted. Uh, I bought a hybrid, so I get about 38 miles to the gallon in mine, and I uh, um, couldn't find it anywhere. So finally, I went to the dealership, and I said, you know, I got my wife's approval, and she said, you know, just go get the car you want. So sat down with a guy, and I said, okay, here's what I want. And he kind of went, hmm, well, okay. And he he did the worst thing you can ever have in a sales presentation. He turned the laptop around, showed me the spreadsheet. He said, it was a big dealership. And they said, you know, you said, I got five coming in in the next five months. The MSRP is the uh, starting bid recently. And I was like, oh, well, this is ridiculous. Why is that? And he's like, well, you know, the supply chain. And I kind of nodded politely like I knew what I was talking about. Oh, sure. Yep. Supply chain. Mm. And then in, since that's happened and since, you know, you and I had to fly halfway across the country and drive our car back cars back cannonball run style the supply chain comes up so much more in business so i thought well let's let's find an expert and ask ask her some questions about it so today our guest is emily lavasser from waypost advisors emily works with manufacturing and distribution clients primarily b2b she offers interim staffing solutions for things like resignations maternity leaves or temporary projects and she also helps with uh, supply chain improvements. So things like managing their inventory, cash flow, working capital needs, uh, time shipment of goods, transportation of raw material costs, all sorts of good stuff. So thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks, Trigvi, for a shining introduction. And it was definitely interesting to hear you and Dave talk about your car purchasing. I'm, uh, I'm curious what kind of cars you guys are buying these days that you're chasing them around the country. Dave, what do, what do, you, what do you drive? So mine is a very strange one. It's um, a Audi RS7, which okay. is a 605 horse kind of crazy thing. So um, it's, it's really fun, but uh, it was also very specialized. So there were only like two of them in the country when I was looking. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I drive a Toyota RAV4 Hybrid Limited. So... Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it, I, I get about 40 miles to the gallon, but I, what I wanted out of my new car is I wanted leather seats because I have an eight-year-old and I wanted heated seats because I'm middle-aged and I have a bad back. And, and we live in Minnesota, let's be honest. I, I live in Minnesota, and so, but that was a trick that I learned from a buddy of mine who, you know, during the summer, if his back hurt, he'd tell his wife he'd go to the grocery store and then he'd 
turn the air conditioning on high and turn his back war- the seat warmer on. Uh-huh. But the only place I could find it uh, in the ca- car that I have, it's 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 a deep red burgundy color, and it's got tan interior. And there were it was one of five that was made that year. Excellent. I'm yep. fascinated by that, guys, because those are those are not you know crazy collector vehicles mm-hmm. that are yeah. super rare, you know, and that which was what I was thinking when you were talking about it. I mean, those are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're special, don't get me wrong, but yeah, relatively yeah. standard mm-hmm. type vehicles mm-hmm. and that you experienced having to fly around the country to find what you want um, mm-hmm. yeah. is a, a great example of our hashtag. Yeah, and my, my son even, uh, my I'll tell you this, and then we can talk about what we want to talk about. And, you know, the funny thing about my car, Emily, is my son just recently, complete, who's eight, he completely ruined my childhood. I sat, down, I sat him down and we watched <laughs> it, a couple episodes of Knight Rider. And so, and then he and I went out to there. I was like, oh, what do you think of the show? And he's like, well, I think it's boring. Like, what are Aww. you talking about? This is a car that talks to you. And he goes, um, your car talks to you, dad. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but no, you don't understand that he kid had TV screens. He's like, well, your car has a TV screen. No, but you don't understand. He has like all the information in the world to help. Michael fight crime. He goes, so Michael plugged his phone in. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then it's like, but he's got that cool watch where he can talk to the car. And he literally reached over and pressed the bezel on my Apple watch and goes, Siri, start daddy's car. (laughs) (laughs) You are a night rider. Yeah, I I guess. uh, I guess uh, driving a family car. So, you know, Emily, I I know all about the supply chain and I know every idiosyncrasy of it. But, you know, since Dave's here, why don't we start with the basics? What what is that? Yeah, for for Dave's benefit and for the benefit of our listeners. Yeah. (laughs) So I would define supply chain as obviously it's a physical movement of goods. And all of the activities required for that to happen, including the informational interchanges. So when I think of it, it starts with, well, it really starts with the planning process, if that exists in a supply chain. And this is sort of the, this is the mathy, sciencey, nerdy piece of it that is a little bit more new. It's a younger portion of the supply chain. So this would be forecasting, right? Forecasting the demand. This would be supply planning, understanding how we bring in material to satisfy our production and inventory needs. This would be inventory optimization, setting setting our optimal stocking levels so that we're not spending an extensive amount of money on inventory, but we have enough to overcome any of the variabilities that might cause us to need to chew into stock. And then capacity optimization, particularly in a distribution and a manufacturing model. The next piece then pushes into what are we going to buy and where are we going to get it from? So in supply chain terms, we would call that sourcing, where the material comes from, procurement, kind of the management of the categories in that and how we buy optimally. And then the purchasing, which is actually creating the purchase orders, submitting it to suppliers. And then manufacturing is actually a piece of the broader supply chain so when it when the materials come in you know they're going to get used in the production of an eventual finished good that then will be stored in a warehouse for a period of time and shipped to an end user a customer a retailer whoever that is and then eventually on to a consumer right so it's all of those pieces from the planning to the purchasing to the production to the distribution and storage of it all the way driven by what essentially a consumer needs. 
if we don't have consumers buying stuff, then the whole rest of the upstream supply chain is generally not necessary. Got it. And so where did our car supply problems come in? You know, what what's happening in this in the news cycle right now that everybody's blaming the supply chain on missing vehicles and and late phones? Yeah, great question, Dave. And I think at a high level, what we're experiencing is just significant and completely unpredictable variability in the supply chains. And I'm going to caveat that by saying the last three to six months have started to cool off a little bit and we're getting back to periods of stability. But certainly from March of 2020 through, we'll call it summer of 2022, what we've been living in is this unpredictability on both sides of the equation. And the two sides I'm speaking about are demand, right? The need for the products and then supply, the the ability to get them. Mm -hmm. And COVID was an unprecedented time of variability on both sides, right? Demand went crazy and it moved all over the place for various reasons. Then we also basically had every possible constraint you could think of in terms Mm -hmm. of resourcing and labor for manufacturing and for the supply chain operations, warehouses, ports, vessel operations, all of those different things. And then our suppliers also had those same labor constraints and issues. So what happens then is we call it a lead time from the moment you place a purchase order until the moment product is delivered, that time extended significantly. So the problem is if you have a normal eight-week lead time and all of a sudden your eight-week lead time extends to 12 weeks, you are going to have a four-week gap where you are not going to have product. Mm -hmm. So how that affected the cars, I think, was that the car, it wasn't that people couldn't make cars, it was the computer chips that went into optimizing cars, right? That, that's really what the, the hiccup has been for most auto manufacturers. Yeah. At the time that the period that you guys were talking about, I mean, you think of the thousands and thousands of components that go into the final finished good of an automobile. Many of those components were significantly disrupted. The chips and the circuit boards being a couple of the big ones that continue to be problematic on a worldwide scale. And were certainly crunched at that time because of the limitations of that supply chain. But there were many, many other problematic components because I think what we don't often think about is as consumers is just all of these components that go into the things that we like circulate around the globe, right? They come from different places around the world. And a lot of times they have to move from place to place. They're going to go from point A to point B and be assembled into a subassembly. And then in that subassembly, they're going to move to somewhere else and they're going to be put into a larger subassembly and then they're going to be moved somewhere else. So, you know, we operate on this really global scale and any of the disruptions and particularly in the shipping industry were really highly impactful of that and impacted the lead time of the availability and the final delivery of your automobile. And, and even it's before it gets to that, sometimes raw materials are affected too, right? Absolutely. Where component manufacturers can't even build their, the, the things to give to the people to build the thing. Absolutely. We work a lot with food and beverage companies. And there was a period in 2021, maybe kind of in the middle of the year for six months where 
they couldn't get aluminum. I don't know if you guys are mm-hmm. beer mm-hmm. fans, but oh, you know, yeah. there wasn't <laughs> there was an issue with being able to get enough cans, aluminum cans for beer. There was an issue with being able to get uh, little aluminum caps for bottles. You could get the glass bottles, but you couldn't get the aluminum caps. And then, of course, we have the winter storm, an unprecedented ice storm that hits Texas last year in 2021 and really significantly impacts oil refining and and plastic production, right? Energy production and subsequent plastic production. So then there was a period where you couldn't get plastic components for things as simple as packaging, right? So we had product, but not packaging. Mm -hmm. Um, Plastic resin worldwide has been an issue up until maybe the last three to six months that market has finally started to catch back up. So mm-hmm. there's all these things that we don't think about that go into building all these pieces. And basically, they were all in a chokehold for the last two years. Wow. Okay. So we work with a lot of manufacturers, of course. And one of the common questions that we get, or certainly one of the complaints, is yes, we're having problems with this particular component, or you know, like you said, packaging all the way back to any different or any any kind of supply material can be affected. How can small manufacturers in particular kind of plan around some of these supply chain issues or you know are are there good places for them to look if they run into a roadblock with their supply chain yeah that's a it's a great question dave and there are a lot of components to this so mm-hmm. i love that you used the optimal word in my opinion plan how can small manufacturers plan around this and i think that it starts with the planning piece right it, it's almost impossible for your supply chain to have any hope of being proactive if it doesn't start with some sort of a demand-driven plan. And that's that's a forecast, right? And there are different methods for forecasting, but I honestly think that what's most relevant at this point is leveraging your sales and your customer service teams or your engineering teams that are working with your customer client base to understand what are your clients seeing in their markets in terms of their demand and how does that reflect to your customers or clients and what they're going to need. And then that drives back everything a supply chain and an operational supply chain should be doing. So I think that's my that's always my first recommendation to mm-hmm. smaller companies, especially because the the planning piece is kind of a younger discipline in supply right. chain. And many companies either don't have that talent or just aren't even aware of how it should be structured. So then from there, once you have like, essentially the question is, what are we going to sell in the next six to 12 months to our best knowledge and ability? What are we going to be able to sell? And then the other piece that I think I see a lot of fall down is pushing that back into the supply chain in a way that they actually are set up for success Mm -hmm. in being proactive rather than reactive. So here's a great example. It doesn't do a lot of good if marketing is going to put on a BOGO buy one, get one sale, and you're going to anticipate a lift of 50% in your sales volumes. If you're going to plan that BOGO for two weeks out, but it takes your yeah. supply chain eight weeks to actually mm-hmm. get the inventory you need. That's that's a big miss if you haven't thought that far out. So really creating that cross-functional awareness with the sales and marketing teams of, hang on a second, how are we stocked? What's mm-hmm. our production capacity? And what's our lead time to be able to 
buffer our inventories if we need to. And then we can start talking about promotional lifts. That's one of the things that we talk to people all the time as we're trying to plan out a better source of sales and marketing alignment in a company is, you know, they say, oh, well, what would you like? Well, we, you know, we'd like more leads. Okay, great. If I give you 100 leads, you can close tomorrow. Is that going to, how, how crushed are you going to be? And they go, oh, well, I, I, I hadn't really thought about that. So growth for being smart about your growth is absolutely, it sounds like is just as important in the front of the house as well as the execution model behind where you're following almost the same model of needing to forecast uh, what you need and then how to how to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and- Emily, we kind of had some fun uh, poking at, at the car industry, but what are some, <laughs> and, and you mentioned uh, the interesting thing about plastics is, as a consequence of the, the Texas issues in 2021. So what in, other industries are being affected right now by supply chain issues? Uh, many industries. It uh-huh. is getting better though, guys. I do want to make sure that the listener base is aware that things are loosening up quite a bit. Drivers of that being that demand, consumer demand has cooled in the last couple of months for whatever the reason may be, but it has cooled. So Purchasing is down, production utilization is down in many sectors, many sectors. So it, it is helping, but I, we really got caught on everything up until about probably three to six months ago because of shipping constraints, right? And the two, so mm-hmm. US-based specifically, manufacturing and, and consumer sales, we got really choked on containers, right? Container has been a big challenge. Mm -hmm. And a couple of reasons for that being just the incredible amount of demand, the springboard of demand that came loose after we got a little bit more comfortably through COVID. Mm -hmm. And then the other challenge really has been China and the zero COVID policy, which, you know, they have a couple of cases of COVID in a very, what would be a large city to me, and they shut the whole city down. So it really reduces their port throughput capacity. And seven of the largest por- of the 10 largest ports in the world are in China. Wow. So that, that has been a huge problem as there's been a really big kind of back and forth in terms of the ability to move freight. And then, of course, trucking. Trucking in the U.S. was a problem as well. And I'm sure many of our listeners are well aware that trucking capacity is, is and is going to be an issue for years to come because of the lack of drivers. And because of some of the regulations that have been enforced with good intention, intention mm-hmm. around safety, um, but some of the regulations that have been enforced that limit a driver's ability to drive a number of hours. Again, that's that mm-hmm. wave is receding a bit right now because demand is down and warehouses are full, so shipments are down. But once we kind of spring back to a more normal level of consumerism, it's going to continue to be a problem. Do you feel like with... And and at the time of our recording, we're in the second week of November uh, going into 2022 here. So the holiday season is fast approaching. Mm -hmm. Do you see another crush of, you know, shipping problems and and trucking and and that kind of, are there other big things that you see in the near term future that might be impacted in the supply chain that our listeners might want to know about? So yes, there are always impending supply (laughs) chain issues. They're different right now. So what I can tell you is um, from a consumer goods holiday perspective, retailers brought in their holiday inventory six months ago. 
because what happened in 2020 and 21 is right. they didn't bring their stuff in far enough in advance. Mm -hmm. So then I didn't get there in time. Mm -hmm. So that, that means that we should have better stocked shelves for the items that we want. However, the flip side of that is that a lot of sales have slowed in a lot of places. So we have warehouses that are literally packed to the gills, guys. Warehouses everywhere. Ooh. You cannot find warehousing space right now because Ooh. it's just stuffed full of everything. And so the problem that that creates is it slows down the receipt of inbound containers and trucks. So I'm going to send a container to a warehouse and it's going to sit there for 30 days at this point waiting to be unloaded because there isn't warehouse capacity. So what that does is it ties up the container availability and more importantly, the chassis that they use to pull the containers <laughs> around. Yeah. So now you have trucks waiting for hours and hours at contain in inland and port container ports to pick up their containers. So there's still a lot of congestion. There's still a lot of tr trouble in those types of areas. And then compound that right now, by the time this airs, I'm not sure this will be relevant, but sure. there's another potential railroad, impending ra U.S. railroad strike um, that could go as early as December 5th. I don't mm -hmm. think it will. A railroad strike would be so detrimental to the economy and to just to business and people in general that I think the government would step in and intervene there, which they've done a couple of times with other potential railroad strike issues this late mm -hmm. this year. But I mean, that would be huge. Every, almost everything has some component of being impacted by a rail, whether directly or as a trickle-down effect, that would be hugely impactful. So as things are backing up in warehouses, which then is backing up the trucks, which is then backing up the, the boats, which is then backing up, what I'm interested in is, is sort of an interesting juxtaposition with the idea that, that inflation is getting so high and things are becoming even more expensive. And is there a tipping point where somebody's got to clear out the the warehouse? So then all of a sudden there's an 80% off sale at TJ Maxx yes. or when's that inevitability come, come into play? It did happen. I forget what month it was. Maybe it was September or August even that Target announced a 90% dinger on their profits because they took a massive write down on their inventory because they mm -hmm. just had so much and they needed to move it. Mm -hmm. And you could see that at the store level. I, I remember going to, I have a five-year-old daughter and going to Target to buy her some new little leggings that are normally $5. It's not a big, big expense, right? But $5 pair of leggings had been marked down to $3. Right. Like they're just trying to get stuff to move at this mm -hmm. point. And so a lot of that is happening kind of across the board. And I would I would continue to see prices on consumer goods fall, e even through the holiday season, because they just want to move inventory. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Let, let's maybe play this out in, in, in terms of a real case scenario. So when COVID hit, I, you know, like everyone else, ran to the store and got toilet paper and there wasn't any. <laughs> so there, were, there were empty store shelves and they said, well, we'll get it when we get it. And so why didn't we have toilet paper? Why did it take so long to get toilet paper back? Yeah, I think the biggest thing on toilet paper was the run on demand right? Everybody Ooh. had this panic moment of, right. you know, this is the classic story, right? This panic moment of, oh my goodness, I may not be able to leave my house for a while. I need to make sure I have toilet paper, right? And so everybody went out looking to stock up on toilet paper. And that's that variability that probably 
probably what happens with toilet paper is it's a very, very stable, what I call pull pattern, right? The, mm-hmm. the, de- the purchasing is very, very stable on an aggregate level, right? And now all of a sudden you're doing double or triple the volumes. You're pulling your inventory down immediately, but that lead time to order new product for the for Charmin or whoever it is to order new product hasn't changed. And in fact, it's extended. So you've drawn down all your stocks and you don't have new stuff coming in for weeks now. But that's it. I mean, that's where the toilet paper went. <laughs> and sure. what happened. So, so basically, uh, a, a, any given store gets so many cases of toilet paper because people yep. know that, or the stores know, this is about how much it's going to use. And that's then their all forecasting. of a sudden, everybody yep. slapped up. And, and they're like, oh my gosh, we got to do... And it's not like it was a stomach flu. So I don't. I still don't know why toilet paper went crazy, but <laughs> it, it's it's just the wildest thing. But so all of a sudden, everybody was asking for it, and there's no, like it's it's like a just in time kind of thing, sort of, isn't it? With with supply on on that kind of consumer good, yeah. or is it just that I don't it was think so. Stable? It's not that type of thing is not just in time. I, I would mm-hmm. say there's there's inventory stock. You know, mm-hmm. I'll go back to my favorite again because we're in Minnesota. Target yeah. has some yeah. stock of toilet paper, right? Sure. And then the distributor who distributes that has a stock of toilet paper, and then Charmin has their stock of toilet paper and and all those types of things. So there is buffer stock in the entire supply chain, but mm-hmm. there's only so much. We don't have it. You can't keep yeah. infinite because if you mm-hmm. think of it this way, think of inventory this way. I love relating this to to a human being who may not work in supply chain. If you're going to go buy more toilet paper, you have to pay money for that, right? Mm -hmm. You're spending now twice as much on toilet paper. That's just going to sit there a little bit longer. Right. And so a company has to do the same thing. If they're going to increase buffer stocks, they have to spend money then to increase those stocks that are just going to sit there on right. the possible future that they would need to sell a little bit extra. So and that costs a lot of money and they yeah. have to pay for it and move yeah. it and you get increased damages. There's all sorts of stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. So there actually is an optimal, mathematically, statistically optimal stocking level based on some different parameters that many companies try to operate that way so that they're not overextending themselves on their their working capital, their cash flow, mm-hmm. but they also have enough to overcome kind of normal fluctuations in demand. And that's where Waypost comes in, right? We can help. We can help companies understand what their optimal stocking levels are. Yes, that's actually mm-hmm. one of my favorite studies to do. So, yeah, cool. Uh, so, because uh, I, 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 I don't like single ply. It's just a thing I have. So. Uh, I, I I sketched this out a little, and, and uh, loosely speaking, because I'm really not an expert at this, for toilet paper to get into my house, uh, it would have had to, uh, it started as a tree, so there would have had to have been a, uh, a, a logger to cut it down, mm-hmm. a sawyer to break it down, mm-hmm. and then it would have had to have been delivered on a truck to uh, a, a milling factory, which then mm-hmm. would have pulped it in some way. Which then, so now we have a paper product of some kind. Now okay. we have to take that raw material then, and that's so we've talked talk about three different styles of people so far. The fourth is that has to be converted in some sort of manufacturing way into toilet paper, two ply, of course, and then uh, it has to be packaged, which is the 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 fifth different specialization. Then that has to be. Uh, um, 
put into a warehouse for delivery. Then it has to be put into my store for Mm -hmm. delivery. And there's trucks along the way. So there's nine steps in just something as simple as toilet paper. At least, if not more, because there's probably a distributor somewhere in the middle there. And then not only do you have to get to the store, so then the, the retail store has to receive it into their inventory, and then they somehow have to get it out to their shelves. Right. And and that actually is a very challenging piece of the whole retail food and, and consumer good retail distribution is just getting things moved out to the shelves. So at Waypoint Advisors, Emily, what are some of the things that you're seeing that are sort of common fails that businesses are 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 hitting with this this kind of thing right now? What are what are some what are the what's the frequently asked issue question that you get you're getting a lot of right now? Sure. Okay, so twenty twenty-four. So um Waypost, Waypost advisors, not Waypoint. Yeah, Waypost. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So frequently asked questions. The most frequent thing we're getting asked right now is about inventory and staffing. So almost all of our new clients that are reaching out at this point are saying, I have too much inventory. My warehouses are overwhelmed. My production operations are overwhelmed. I'm seeing an incredible amount of scrap. How do I fix this? And that goes back to really understanding what are those drivers of the inventory? What does the forecast look like? What does the lead time look like? What is your purchasing team doing? Is your purchasing team well connected enough to what your inventory levels should be to make the right decisions? And do they have the data and information to do so? I think the second biggest thing that we're getting questions on right now, and again, we're in the second week of November, and we just saw a rate hike by the Fed, and we're seeing some inflation numbers that are coming down, and we're seeing a lot of layoff information coming out. But up to this point, it's been taking 100, at least in, in the upper Midwest, in the Twin Cities area, it's been taking 100 plus days to fill supply chain roles, and more specifically, supply chain manager, director, and above. So purchasing, sourcing, planning, whatever. Mm. So the other question we get a lot is, hey, I can't have this role open for three to four months. Do you have someone who could step in and keep us moving and keep my team engaged and make sure that we're continuing to improve processes? Oh, and by the way, can you shed some light on how we could continue to improve processes? And yes, that's, that is absolutely something that we do and we love to do. And it has been a huge value for companies so that they're not just hanging back in the pocket for three or four months while they fill that role. What are some of uh, the industries that your clients are are in? You don't have Food to say the exact ones, but you just what, what kind of supply chain is, issues are, are are you focusing on right now? Sure. So our biggest ones, and I think this is just kind of a factor of our our network and and where we're located physically, but food and beverage is a big one for us. Food and beverage ingredients, and you mentioned it in the beginning, Trigvi. Thank you. B2B, right? So we're we tend to not do kind of the retail or direct to consumer side. We we can, but B2B. And then um almost fell off my chair there, guys. Sorry. Um, and then medical device was another one that we got into early on. And so we've seen a lot of activity around medical device. And then to be honest with you, the rest of it, what we say is as long as it moves a product, so if there's a physical manufactured or distributed product, we can we can be helpful in that space. We've done board games, we've done balloons, we've done um, towels, we've done pots and pans, we've done clothing. I mean, it, we've done automotive. So there's a lot of different places that we can play. 
Amazing. Yeah, you you mentioned balloons. Is helium really in short supply now? Yeah, it, it was. I'm not super close to the helium market in the last, right, we'll, we'll call it three months. Uh-huh. But I mean, it, it was in, in very short supply. And actually, it was one of the biggest drivers of, of demand reduction for the balloon companies out there is they just haven't been oh. able to get the helium they need. Right. And a lot of that, that's geopolitical disruption, right? A lot of that is coming from sure. the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. Sure. U- and Ukraine's, that- big in, uh, Ukraine's big in the helium space? Or? <laughs> yeah. I think that, that area of the globe um, supplies, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have my statistics on this here, guys, but supplies the majority of the helium. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. So, oh. so Putin is trying to ruin my kid's birthday party, is what he's telling me. <laughs> Amongst other things, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Well, and a, that's that's a, one of the things that's really fascinating about all this is that it's not just the U.S. that we're talking about here. I mean, it is truly the entire world is interconnected now, yes. and so shipping and all of those things that come in when that evergreen blocked the canal, ever given, that, yep, that was the ever given. It was so huge. And it was like, well, it's just one boat, but Mm -hmm. no, it cut off the entire, it it added like three months to the Mm -hmm. shipping times for things that were critical. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the issue with that is just how long it takes to get around the globe if you're not going through the Suez Canal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So Mm -hmm. if you got to divert your ships around, you know, the Horn of Africa or in other places, it takes a really long time to get through there. I think one of my favorite examples, guys, and I doubt that consumers saw this because this was very much a B2B issue. Mm -hmm. When the conflict in Ukraine and Russia began, and as it continued, companies decided they didn't want to do business with the Russian oligarchs, right? Mm -hmm. So what what we didn't realize is, and Trigvi, when you were going through kind of like the steps to get toilet paper, right, to a a consumer... What you're talking yeah. about are the tiers, the tiers of a supply chain, right? So there's there's us, we're going to get our product. We have our tier one, who's the distributor that's sending us our product. Tier two would be well, whoever is supplying the distributor. Tier three would be whoever is supplying the, the wood pulp or the, um, sorry, the pulped paper to the toilet paper production. Tier four would be whoever's bringing the wood pulp to the plant, right? So those are your different tiers. So what ended up being sort of true and interesting is a very large portion, something to the effect of 80% of white paper, food paper bag packaging. So like a 50 pound bag of food starch, for example, is packed in um, a two ply bag that has like corrugated paper on the inside and then white paper on the outside. And then the logos are printed. Something like 80, 80% of that white paper was owned by Russian oligarchs. And so wow. you didn't want to do business with Russian oligarchs anymore. You didn't really have any other options because the other 20% came from China and there were some serious you know, shipping constraints out of China. So a lot of food production suppliers were on their heels trying to find alternative solutions to that white paper bag issue. And who would have found? Yeah. Huh. I thought it was just seizing yachts. More, more than that. I mean, maybe a little less important on the white paper bag side than a yacht, right. but yeah, right. absolutely. 
That's oh like the worst FBI seizure ever, ever. You know, you, you're not taking down Capone. You walk into a warehouse that's full of paper bags. Yay, we did it. <laughs> right? right? But worth so much money at one point earlier this year. Uh, yeah, that's true. So what what steps, Emily, can small businesses do to to, to do better in, in, in coming years? Yeah, I think great question, Trigvi. And I think back to that planning piece. If if your business, if you can't clearly answer the question of who's responsible for making sure that we're taking those consumer, customer, client insights and driving them back through the supply chain in a way that helps us make better decisions. If you can't answer that question, then I think that's a good question to start asking is how do you mature your your supply chain planning organization? Then also the whole end-to-end. And the second piece I would give to that is data. How can you make sure that data and information are flowing through the organization as well so that it isn't reliant on Bob going and talking to Marge to you know convey that message to the supply chain? Mm-hmm. One other thing I didn't mention that I think is really important is also making sure you're not getting caught on your heels in terms of supplier management. So we would always recommend where possible that you have more than one supplier for a particular material, right? So you're not beholden to them. Those are the companies that got really caught on their heels in 2021, specifically with price increases or lack of product availability if they didn't have a qualified substitute. Now, there are legitimate reasons you may not have a qualified substitute. If it's a highly specialized material, if you simply don't have the volume where it doesn't make sense to divide the volume you do have between two suppliers. But then what I would suggest is making sure that your supplier management strategies match your needs. So if you have particularly a highly specialized material or a critical material, if you don't get this material delivered when you need it every day, your production facility is down. That is a critical Mm -hmm. material. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that you have a very strategic and tight relationship with that supplier, that you're sharing information openly, that they understand how critical they are to your operations because you are beholden to them and they have the ability to really impact your business. So those, those are probably the biggest pieces I would recommend. There mm-hmm. are other things out there that I know manufacturers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis that we don't have a good solution for. Manufacturing labor, that's, that's going to be yeah. a problem for a while. And we can't yeah. help in that space necessarily, right. uh, apart from potentially being able to plan. And our recommendation would also be to drive efficiencies at a plant. And there's a lot of talk of automation at production facilities um, that's not specifically our space. I'm happy to talk to anyone about it, but mm-hmm. you know, those are just things that we're going to languish with a little bit for years to come. I think one of the things we've seen in in that same space and in, in in the recruitment is don't sell the thing, sell the results. So we, we one of our recruiting companies that we worked with, one of the things we found is they what they blamed the website. They were saying, "Oh, the website's not not functioning," and we were like, "Well, no, it really is." But they were putting up job posts that said something like, uh, you know, second shift machinist in in mm. in in White Bear Lake. And like and that that was the job description. It's like, well, A, how much does it pay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's it like working there? Yeah, Your website looks like it's from 1983. Why would I want to work at a company that I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to scrape on tone, stone tablets in order to work there? <laughs> 
So just even ha- from from that sense, I know uh, you know this is primarily about supply chain, but we find just there's so much more context in selling the end result of you should come to work here because of X that we just aren't seeing a lot of people doing because it's just they're so strung out and they're going right into trying to get into just just come here, just come here, just uh, no, you still got to sell it somehow, right? Emily, as as we look at this from a planning perspective, I think we talked a little bit ago about, you know, if if you're trying to plan for the future, what do you need to know? How about for a company that hasn't really given any serious thought to supply chain? Mm -hmm. What kind of systems can they put in place or what kind of steps would you consider or, or encourage them to try in order to start planning for supply chain and start taking it seriously? Like, where do we start? Yeah, I love that question, Dave. So my my answer based on observations is that a lot of smaller manufacturers have a supply chain that is very, very tactical, transactional, reactive. And part of that is because a lot of times supply chain gets wrapped up under operations, right? It falls under a COO or VP of ops, which is fine. That's not a critical point for me. But I think what's important is to start thinking about your supply chain as a critical capability to your to your business. So thinking more strategically about the supply chain and what it needs to be for your company and where you need those capabilities to be. And one of my favorite examples is so many people in supply chain get addicted to it, I think, because it's it's fun and it's a different challenge every day. And it's, I get to get in and figure out how to do this and it's high intensity And a lot of them are the types of folks that maybe didn't enjoy a different role in the business. So they Mm -hmm. got dumped into a supply chain role, right? But they don't necessarily have a background in it. They don't necessarily have a lot of different experiences. They just kind of got put there because they were willing to do it. And my challenge to companies is to really kind of think differently about how you elevate your capabilities and your strategic thinking there. Because you might be shooting yourself in the foot a little bit on your execution by not thinking more strategically about Mm -hmm. your supply chain. So enhancing those capabilities. And I think from a system perspective, great question there too, Dave, is just how there are a lot of tools out there on different... I'm going to use the term tier, but I mean something different, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of tools out there generally called an ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning System, that will get you off of Excel and will allow you to kind of tie together your whole business operations, including giving you visibility to what we're purchasing, how long it's taking to get it, like what are our forecasts look like, what are our pull patterns look like, so you can make better decisions once you have those capabilities that you've built in your teams then you have the data and analytics to use some buzz terms to actually make more insightful decisions on what you need to do. And I would say, don't overcomplicate it. Not every company should go out and buy SAP. That is a very complicated system, right? There are much simpler systems that are going to be a step change from recording data or not in Excel mm-hmm. that, that are very easy not very easy, nothing's ever easy to implement, but much easier to implement, much more insightful and much less expensive without overcomplicating things. Is there a continuum of like service? So if you start on a very small ERP or in a system, um, where would you consider like the absolute table stakes? Like how, how big of a 
ERP or what's what's a minimum investment that people should be ready to be spending in order to get an ERP? And then how much might it take to actually get that thing online? Because there's a lot yeah. of sunk costs that are involved in setting it up, right? Yeah. I cannot answer the cost of an ERP yeah. implementation. Mm-hmm. What I will say is the minimum requirements for an ERP, in my opinion, and in any ERP is going to be your finances and your order, your order management, right? So Mm -hmm. you need your customer service teams to be able to enter orders in the system. You need to have visibility to inventory so that, you know, the system can net that all out. That's a minimum. And then your finances need to flow through. So once it ships, you've got to trigger an invoice and there has to be some way for when payment comes in that that all gets tracked in the system. Those are, those are table stakes on an ERP. I would say, A table stake that I would say also is what's called material replenishment planning or MRP. And that's essentially the purchasing side of an ERP. Mm -hmm. So you can set up very basic parameters that will take, here's what we have on order. Here's what we have on inventory. Here's the production plan. I'll come back to the production plan piece. Here's what we know of our order lead times. And the system will trigger you to say, this is what you need to buy and when. Particularly if you have a lot of SKUs and not so many buyers thousands of SKUs, a couple of buyers, you need that automation because it's not realistic to be reloading spreadsheets every single day and looking for which ones are running out two months from now. right? Mm. So I, I would say the MRP is also a table stake. The other two pieces that from a supply chain perspective, I would also recommend is that planning piece. You can implement pieces. They're usually what's called like a bolt-on. It's not a standard ERP module, but you can add them on. But that's what will allow you to take in forecast information and pump that into the system. So it's not just what we have on order. It's not just what we have in inventory. But then we can also bring in what are our anticipated sales and forecasts and inventory stocking points that will then have the MRP system tell your buyers what they need to buy. And then the last component of that, which I would say approach with caution, can be very valuable. But in in my experience in 17 years, I have seen a lot more companies struggle with implementing production planning modules than I have seen them be successful. But that would be the other piece of the equation, right? Is not only what you have on order, not only what you have on inventory, not only what you are forecasting, not only what you're targeted stocking levels are, but then let's bring in the um, production plan from the plant and then have that tell the buyers what to buy. You can get a lot more accuracy if all of that stuff is functioning correctly. Um, You can get a lot more accuracy in your purchasing signals. But again, the production planning piece, depending on the business, can be quite complicated. Well, this all just sounds awful that (laughs) there are dozens of people involved and dozens of plates spinning at any given time any any, that could fall at any time and you need to have a complete backup of all that all just so that i can have my toilet paper with the nice little red bear on it (laughs) some of us enjoy this stuff trigby (laughs) well i mean i I think if anything's painfully evident of this is this is not for the amateur this is if, if if this is something that is affecting your company, you need to have a higher level of expertise than just somebody, an entry level person to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. I really think that is the tip of the iceberg that, and not to say that there isn't value in the entry level, right? But 
if you're just gutting it out and reacting to everything, then it's time to start thinking about how do you get the capabilities in place to not to enable you to be more proactive than reactive, for sure. Wow. All right. Well, uh, Dave, uh, do you feel like you understand supply chain a little bit better now? I don't know if I'm a pro, but I sure am a whole lot smarter than I used to be. Which, I, which is I, my head hurts too. Yeah. yeah. Just, the, the, the biggest thing that I'm taking away from our chat, Emily, and again, the, the theme of our podcast, right, is dialing it in. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of knobs and dials in the supply chain. Yeah, and absolutely. So planning and looking at alternative sources and making sure that you've got the right person in the seat and definitely hiring a consultant to help guide you along the way are things that our clients should be thinking about. Yeah, I think all of those things and, you know, cautionary with the the consulting word, I know that Mm -hmm. frequently puts people off, but there, there are a lot of ways to approach how you get better practices. I know everybody likes to talk about how can we be you know, best in class or implement best practices. Right. How about we just go for better practices and let, let that step change occur before we shoot for the moon in that case. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's definitely not for the faint of heart and it can be really, really hard work. But getting to that more planful, proactive place is going to put a little less burden on the teams and make them feel a little bit more fulfilled in their work, shall we say. Right. Emily, if, if uh, people feel like I feel, which is just, I'm just exhausted thinking about all this <laughs> and thinking, uh, thank, thank God I know you. If people want to get a hold of you for help, how, how can they find you? Sure. So you can check us out on our webpage at waypostadvisors.com. We have a couple of buttons you can push there to contact us. They could also reach out to me at emilyl at waypostadvisors.com via email. I could geek out on supply chain stuff all day long. So I always encourage people to call and have a conversation. And you know we can share a lot about what we're seeing in terms of practices with our clients and what we know that might be helpful. By the way, guys, I mean, if you're looking for a job, I'd be happy to work with you at any point because you're half experts now. So <laughs> give yourself some credit. Wow. Uh, no, no. Uh, just I, well, no. We would be yeah. the weak links in the supply chain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, we are. We are the weakest links. So, Emily, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks so much for giving us a good once over on what this is. And again, if anybody is looking to find her, uh, you can find her in the show notes. And at, as she said, at waypostadvisors.com. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the time. Great conversation, and I'm glad you both got your cars. <laughs>